Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, tonight we're debating whether or not the sun or the earth is at the center of the solar system and we're starting right now with Ozzy's opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us, Ozzy, and the floor is all yours. Thank you, James, for allowing me to present my argument on modern day debate and thank you, Ironworks, for being my sparring partner today. I'm Ozzy and it's beyond my belief that somebody actually believes that the earth is flat or that it's the center of the universe. So this should be fun. Let me start by saying something I know we all can agree on. The Earth ain't flat. Now, I know some of y'all might be thinking, duh, of course not. But let me tell you, there's still some folks out there who argue the Earth is flat. And to them, I got to ask, you ever trying to plan a vacation using a flat Earth map? Now, I know some of you might be thinking, but wait, isn't the idea of a round Earth just a theory? What if it's all just a giant conspiracy? Well, well, let me ask you this. Have you ever planned it? Uh, ever played tetherball you know that childhood game where you hit a ball attached to a rope and it spins around and around never falling to the ground well think of the sun as a pole and the planets as balls the rope in this case is a bit stretchy and elastic we call that the force of gravity pulling the planets in elliptical orbit around the sun and just like the ball on a tetherball rope the planets will either be pulled into the sun or continue to stretch out into the vast expanse of space. Now, if that's not a scientific explanation for the heliocentric model, I don't know what is. So let's go over a bit of history about the three musketeers of science. Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler. These brilliant minds were the ones who really stuck it to the geocentric model and proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the sun, not the earth, is at the center of the solar system. First up, we have Copernicus. This Renaissance man was a true trailblazer, and he was the first to propose the idea that the sun, not the earth, was at the center of the solar system. He was a true revolutionary, and his ideas were so revolutionary that the Catholic Church couldn't deny them until 1616 when they prohibited the theory. But as they say, the truth will set you free. And Copernicus's idea eventually became widely accepted. Next, we have Galileo. This guy was a real troublemaker. He was the first person to use a telescope to study the night sky. And what did he see? He saw that the Earth was not the center of this universe, and the planets orbited the sun. This was such a radical idea at the time that Galileo was put on trial by the Catholic Church and was forced to recant his ideas. But as history has shown, Galileo was right, and his ideas eventually became widely accepted. 
lastly, but you know, there's other important people. We have Kepler. This mathematician was the one who finally put the final nail in the geocentric model coffin by showing the planets orbited the sun in elliptical, not circular orbits. Kepler's laws of planetary motion provided the mathematical proof that the sun, not the earth, was at the center of our solar system. And with that, the heliocentric model was finally accepted as a scientific fact. These laws of planetary motion were used to predict the location of Uranus and Neptune was just proved beyond any reasonable doubt that the heliocentric model is true. So there you have it, folks. The three musketeers of science finally put the geocentric model to bed. And that, my friends, is something to truly orbit around. Let's not beat around the burning bush. The flat earth theory is about as logical as a tetherball on a frictionless rope. But let's take a look at the facts. If the Earth were the center of the solar system, the planets would be doing the cha-cha-cha like a crazy disco ball. But when we make the sun the center, everything falls into place like a well-oiled machine. So let's all put on our dancing shoes and join the heliocentric solar system party because the flat earth theory is just too square. As you can see from these videos, the observed behavior of the planets in our solar system is much more consistent with a heliocentric model in which the sun is at the center and all bodies orbit around it, rather than a geocentric model in which the Earth is at the center and all bodies orbit around this. The planets in the heliocentric model move in elliptical orbits, which can easily explain their observed behavior, such as retrograde motion. On the other hand, in a geocentric model, the planets would have to move in complex and convoluted orbits, which would require a large number of small circular orbits moving around a larger circular orbit to explain their observed behavior. This heliocentric model is more parsimonious and is more in line with Occam's razors. So it's just elementary, my dear Watson. Now, I know some of y'all might be thinking, sure, the heliocentric model might accurate when it comes to describing the motions of the planets, but that don't mean it's true. But let me ask you this. Have you ever seen the planets orbiting the Earth? Me neither. And that's because the overwhelming evidence in scientific ex experiments point to the heliocentric model being correct. Star trails are a beautiful and awe-inspiring sight that we can observe in the night sky. They are caused by the rotation of the Earth, which causes the stars to appear to move in circular patterns over time. As the Earth spins on its axis, the stars in the sky appear to move in an arc, with the North Pole, North Star, remaining relatively still. The longer the exposure of a photograph, the longer the star trails will appear. These trails can be seen as a representation of the Earth's rotation and provide evidence of our planet's spherical shape as they would not be observed on a flat surface. And here's a little joke. Anyways. Let me introduce you to Iron Horse, the ultimate hunter of muskrats. But as you can see in this video, as Iron Horse rise, raises in elevation, he can spot those sneaky muskrats from miles away. Thanks to the curvature of the Earth, the higher the elevation, the further you can see around the curve. And as we all know, a curved earth is much more parsimonious than a flat one. So next time you're out hunting muskrats, remember to bring Iron Horse in his laser eyes. 
Let's take a look at some drone footage here I'm showing. As a drone rises in altitude, notice how the ship on the horizon appears to become taller and narrower. This change in perspective can only be explained by the fact that we are viewing the ships from a curved surface. As we rise higher, we also see we, we are also moving further away. This explanation is simple, elegant, and undeniably true. Sure, the horizon looks flat, but that's just because the Earth's got a little curve to it, like a banana or Uranus. The only thing that's truly flat around here are my abs. And let's not forget, just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. Like the back of my head when I'm doing crunches, it's invisible, but it's definitely there. I've heard many absurd claims, claims to counter the heliocentric model, and here are some examples for your enjoyment. The idea that everyone has a personal sun is just ludicrous. I mean, can you imagine the energy bill for that? And the concept of the sun being an illusion, please. If that were the case, we wouldn't be able to feel the warmth on our skin or see the beautiful golden hues at sunrise and sunset. As for the idea of there being two suns, the one we all see and love, along with some mysterious black one that does who knows what, I can confidently say that I've never seen any evidence of a second shadowy sun in the sky. And finally, the idea that the sun is some sort of a god named Helios is just plain silly. The sun is a massive ball of gas and plasma, not a divine being. But hey, to each their own, I guess. I would love to hear an explanation how any of these are possible. My personal work in remote locations where I rely on time synchronization via satellites in orbit and the theory of relativity to make the calculations for the time, the clock, is evidence of the accuracy of the heliocentric model, and I could not do my work that I perform every day if either were false. In conclusion, the evidence is clear, the science is sound, and it's time for the flat earth conspiracy to be put to rest. The earth is round, and it's time for us to embrace the truth and the beauty of our majestic spherical planet that orbits around our single, glorious, life-giving sun. A shaped oblate spheroid. So let's raise a glass, or should I say a globe, to the truth and the beauty of science. And that's all, folks. Thank you so much for listening, and go ahead. You got it. Thank you very much for that opening, Ozzy. And Anne, want to let you know, folks, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. I'm your host, James Coons, and want to let you know, we hope you feel welcome, no matter what walk of life you're from, whether you believe in heliocentrism, geocentrism you name it we're glad you're here and there are many juicy debates coming up as you can see at the bottom right of your screen thrilled we're gonna have a juicy one on is christianity rational between stuart and matt dillahunty as you can see at the bottom right of the screen if you haven't yet hit that subscribe button as it's going to be a big one you don't want to miss it and with that thanks very much iron horse for being with us as well the floor is all yours for your opening statement over oh, let me just unmute you really quick Cheers, I got it. All right, thanks very much, James, and thank you, Ozian. That was a lovely, mild introduction. Um, I found it hilarious, actually. I will get back to it later, of course, when we get on the open discussion, that gravity is like a tetherball rope. I mean, that's really a, a rope. That's great. Anyway, so we're talking about heliocentrism, and at the nuts and bolts of it, heliocentrism boils down to a very specific topic, which is that A, the Earth is a spinning oblate spheroid, and B, that it goes around the sun once a year. 
There's literally 10,000 ways in which I could dispute this not-so-ancient superstitious belief, but before I do, let's make no mistake about it. It is deeply rooted in ancient pagan beliefs, which in turn became strongly held religious beliefs, which, thanks to the back-engineering abilities of the governors of our minds, eventually led to the godless Big Bang Theory of creation, which basically says everything is a result of a random, chaotic Big Bang destructive force which accidentally created everything from nothing for no reason, without assistance, simply because the laws of infinite probability or the mathematical theory thereof says it's inevitable, eventually. We can skip forward a few billion years or whatever, and now suddenly the monkey, fish, frog, squirrel are dressed dressed in togas and sandals and sending battalions of warriors off to foreign lands to steal their stuff they worked on to survive. And one of the old Jesus says, hey, did you notice how that boat seems to vanish bottom first and when we see it again, we see the sails again before the hull? By Jove, says another, I've, I've even heard that beyond the horizon they even see different stars. Let us appeal to our great philosophers to ponder how that could possibly be so. And one, the great mathematician Pythagoras, said, after great preponderance, I have concluded that the sphere is the perfect shape. Every distance through the centre is equal, every distance from the centre is equal, and therefore, because our creator God in heaven is perfect, and every heavenly light above seems perfectly spherical, then it stands to reason that we too must live on an (laughs) almost perfectly spherical ball. Whilst Pythagoras is Pythagoras merely hypothesized the Earth was spherical purely on aesthetic grounds. Almost two centuries later, Aristotle based his belief on actual physical evidence, namely ships vanish whole first as they sail over the horizon, Earth casts around shadow on the moon during a lunar eclipse, and different constellations are visible at different latitudes. It's almost as though we've taken a kindergarten grade level of understanding, dressed it up in purple, and paraded around as king. It's not hard to understand why the sun has been worshipped as a great deity from the beginning of the governing body, from the beginning of time, the governing body over day and night, the giver of life and light. As regular as clockwork, it's logical to understand why superstitious religious folks sought a scientific means by which to place it in the centre, the traditional place of worship. I could rant on and on for days giving a history lesson, but most everyone already knows about Zeteticism and how the sun is surrounded by his faithful 12 constant constellations, the 12 houses of the zodiac through which he passes annually. Now, the ancient northern European seers of old would dry out the red and white fly agaric mushrooms beneath the boughs of evergreen trees as the days got shorter and shorter, until finally, on the shortest day of the year, when the sun is killed by his evil brother Set, the seers would take the sacred mushrooms and astral travel fly through the stars to venture into the underworld beneath the horizon and there in the stars see the great southern cross, the traditional marker of graves. And thus the story evolved that the Son of God dies on the cross, descends into the underworld for three days and nights, and on the third day he is born again in accordance with the scriptures. There's even strong evidence to suggest that the Son was once known as Lucifer the light bearer, for what better represents the herald of the morning than the sun? Many try to argue that Venus is the so-called morning star, yet that really makes no sense, being that Venus is most always associated with goddesses, such as Isis or Aphrodite, and is often the first star to be seen in the evening. Nothing describes the morning better than the rising of the sun. Pardon me. While some rumours suggest a certain ancient Greek philosopher Aristarchus first proposed that a spherical Earth could be travelling around the sun, much like any other so-called wandering star, even he allegedly dismissed the concept as absurd for many centuries. 
And for many centuries, the geocentric world was accepted, was the accepted belief, <laughs> hard to read my own writing, whereby the earth was motionless, with the sun, moon, and stars moving around us exactly as we see and experience. Even when Copernicus reinvigorated the greatly debunked idea that the Earth was a planet revolving on its axis going around the sun in 1543, he based it almost entirely on mathematical concepts and literally concluded it was impossible. I could basically sit here all day dropping names and experiments searching for motion of the Earth throughout the centuries and modern times, but it becomes pretty obvious to anyone who's researched the matter that every single belief boils down to philosophical preference and the inability of so-called great men of science to accept the fact that Earth is actually the centre of existence. Even one of the modern heroes of recent science, Albert Einstein, came up with his famous theory of relativity simply because he couldn't observe any motion of the Earth. To quote, since then, I've come to believe that the motion of the Earth cannot be determined by any optical experiment, though the Earth is revolving around the Sun. Here we may rightly invoke Hitchens' razor and say that which is believed without evidence may be dismissed without evidence. I actually find my mind boggling at the sheer amount of evidence I've uncovered over recent years that absolutely rules out the philosophical preference that supports heliocentrism over the obvious fact that our, that our Earth is the only physical plane of existence fixed at the bottom of a mostly non-physical, electrical and sonoluminescent universe where, physically speaking, the sky truly is the limit. The big question always boils down to why. What purpose does it serve? And I think we could narrow it down to good old-fashioned human greed. Much like Iceland was named after ice for their enemies of the time and Greenland was falsely named green despite being mostly frozen Iceland, it's proposed that the icy, icy outreaches of the limits of our Earth were shrunk into a tiny continent and claimed to be the southernmost limits of a ball-shaped planet spinning in space since the law <coughs> spinning in space. Full stop. Since the law of the sea differs from most laws of the land, but the law of karma is basically the law of cause and effect, then it is only by our consent that we allow another to rule over us, to govern us, to force our children into compulsory government-approved education, all based on the tradition of maritime law whereby anything found lost at sea becomes the rightful property of he who discovers it. So when Vatican-inspired Jesuit priests conveniently discovered Earth to be lost, floating in the galactic sea, they legally claimed lawful possession of all its land and wealth and all living creatures as their livestock. Slavery, slavery was never abolished. It simply became far more profitable to let them think they were free, make them pay for all their own food, accommodation, clothing, etc., and force them to pay for their own masters and protection, the policy enforcers, and threaten everyone with fines or imprisonment if they refuse to pay taxes. Basically, by having more land reputed to have great wealth and advanced technology, introducing and maintaining scarcity, the very private and discreet ruling class do very well for themselves, giving us the illusion of choice, selecting our own pre-selected puppets and media circus, while we, by consent and the art of letting he who will be fooled be fooled, and the traditional act of consent whereby our parents willfully sign over our certificate of manifest to the registered corpse oration at our moment of birthing from the waters onto dry land via the dock, serve out our duty on the citizenship. If I may now end with a few final words on the impossibility of the heliocentric idea that the Earth goes around the sun. I know my opponent, Ozian, heard my introduction just two weeks ago, whereby I described a scenario that makes the moon impossible if it's to orbit us exactly as we observe, but assume the Earth to be in orbit at 66,600 miles per hour around the sun. 
That's even if we assume the sun to be motionless, as Copernicus proposed almost 500 years ago, as opposed to today's astrophysicists who tell us the sun is actually in motion over half a million miles an hour in yet another direction. The act of any body orbiting another body in motion is mathematically proven to be impossible. Again, we may dismiss the belief, which has no evidence. Finally, I'd like to finish on a point that is constantly glossed over by the Helios and hand-wave dismissed without giving it due consideration that it truly deserves, and that is the clock. This point absolutely destroys heliocentrism for anyone with enough working brain capacity to understand it. For if we think of the sun as the hour hand of a 24-hour clock, it makes perfect sense that it returns overhead every day in every time zone, more or less at midday, with just slight seasonal variations. However, this is a problem for anyone of a mathematical mindset capable of understanding things from an engineering point of view. For if the Earth itself spins on its own axis to create a period of time we call day and night, and we measure this very precisely with a clock, as we do in all four corners of the world, but we say that the period of time given as a year is us actually orbiting the sun, then it's logically impossible to measure the same amount of time, regardless of which values you manufacture for it, and have a fixed clock still match the midday overhead sun each day. It just doesn't work. Without adjusting the fixed time measurement of a clock by as much as four minutes every day, oh, in one seconds. week, it will be out of reckoning by half an hour. In three months, midday by the clock will be at sunset, and in six months, at midnight. There's simply no logical way out of the argument. The only way it could work is if we measured time by sundial, but with a physical fixed mechanical clock or any means of fixed timepiece, for that matter. The geocentric Earth manages this problem beautifully, logically, and sanely. A sidereal day tells us that it's the stars themselves rotating separately as a single body, almost four minutes faster than the sun each day, as the sun remains precisely 24 hours every day going around above us. And that way, over a period of 28 to 28, nine-day moon cycle, the sun then seems to be rising in a different house of the zodiac. That's one of the oldest of sciences. Astrology is based on logical observations of the sky clock above us. So not only is the sun itself proof of our geostationary non-heliocentric model, even the stars presenting precisely the same constant constellations year after year, century after century. The fact they return precisely to their starting point approximately 365.25 rotations of the sun later shows us that there are greater repeating cycles going on above us. So basing them all entirely upon the sun, helios, and thus heliocentrism is entirely a false made-up belief. The stationary topographical planar Earth fixed at the bottom of the known observable universe is the only logical conclusion any rational mind must eventually accept. Thank you very much for that opening as well. And want to let you know, folks, we're going to jump into the open dialogue in just a moment. A couple of quick housekeeping things. In particular, if you happen to have a question, you can feel free to fire it into the old live chat. If you tag me with at Modern Day Debate or if you use a super chat, those go to the top of the list. As well as, if you didn't know about this, we have expanded onto TikTok. Once we get to a 1,000 followers on TikTok, we will be able to live stream our debates there, which we're excited about as we really do want to provide a neutral platform across the different social media platforms for debate. As you can see at the bottom right of your screen, our link for our TikTok is both in the description box and pinned at the top of the chat. So if you help us by following us there, once we get to a 1,000, as I said, we'll be able to expand our live debates there as well. With that... Thank you very much, gentlemen. The floor is all yours for open dialogue. Go ahead, Tony.
All right. So, um, so let's go to clocks, right? So the work I do, I do commission for substations, which requires from terminals that could be a hundred miles apart. And we send a AC signal. It's a 60 Hertz. If you're all familiar with it, it doesn't matter too much, but we have to synchronize our test sets at two locations perfectly. That requires us to have line of sight of at least four satellites in orbit so we get a signal. So if I have my antenna too close to the building, doesn't have line of sight of satellites in orbit, I won't see enough satellites to get a good signal for my test set to synchronize my clock. And in this case, a clock just means like an oscillator, right? Not like a 24-hour clock you would think of normally. So we have to do that at two ends, and they have to be synchronized almost perfectly to like uh, like less than a millisecond synchronized. And you can't do that just setting a clock. You can't synchronize them that closely. And the work I do wouldn't work unless that was precise. So how would the, how would I be able to do my work if there weren't satellites in orbit? And I also have to use theory of relativity because we have to um, compensate for where the satellite is, the distance between the two satellites and us, um, and the gravity between the two. So how would I do my work if that didn't work? Um, yeah, well, you, you've sort of brought up a, a separate topic altogether from clocks by saying that you're using a different sort of clock, not the 24-hour clock, whereas I based my argument on the 24-hour clock, the same one that everybody uses. Yeah, so this one, you're saying satellites exist, whereas I say that satellites, according to. to the heliocentric model, absolutely cannot exist because it's it's ludicrous to think that the Earth itself could be hurtling through the universe in an almost linear direction, it's less than a degree per day, so you could may as well call it linear, of about 1.6 million miles every single day, which means that the satellites going around us must be also going that speed. Like Even things like the International Fake Station, the ISS, is going 17,500 miles per hour. How is that possibly keeping up with the Earth going 66,600 miles per hour? And while we're chasing the sun, going 514,000 miles an hour, that's over half a million. So every one of these little satellites that you're believing in, according to the heliocentric point of view, must be going all those speeds, plus then some other its own speed to stay basically geostationary relative to the Earth. It's impossible. The only way that could actually work in reality is the geostationary Earth, and we send uh, weather balloons up with things attached to them. They could stay geostationary without having to invoke all these amazing impossible speeds that just they can't work for for an inanimate body that has no means of thrusting, it's trying to thrust through a vacuum, it's impossible to do. It, it just, you know, you, there could be things up there for sure, absolutely, I believe that, and there could be technology up there, but it is not working according to the heliocentric model as you believe it. It would be impossible. Well, gravity has to exist for me to be able to get, get the correct time. That's an anal that's analogical. So I was given an analogy. That's not what yeah. gravity actually is. Right. But, you well, know, poor, you're familiar with theory of relativity. It's a very poor analogy though, if you have to invoke a physical tether to try and provide some sort of means to provide, you know, okay, an but let's go for so, that has no physical so, tether whatsoever. Well, it is a physical tether. It's all physical. 
So it's not like um, it's not like a phone physical, right? But it's physical in the sense that it's a physical like force that interacts between physical objects that cause them to. Um, I, I want to say attract, but I'm not a physicist, by the way. But anyways, um, so it's a gravitational constant um, times the mass of the two objects times each other divided by the distance between the two objects squared, right? So the radius squared. Anyway, so that has to exist for me to be able to calculate the proper time at my two locations. So even if you say they're they're weather balloons, like somehow they go up high enough for these calculations to work, gravity has to exist for me to get the correct time at two locations. So we can go to the 24-hour clock thing and why we have that four-minute difference every day and what that and why how we compensate for that. As I'm sure you know how we compensate for that. But I just want to know, I know from personal experience, the work that I do, gravity has to exist. Satellites have to be in orbit. There's, there's, the sky isn't big enough for where I have to see. So let's say I'm like a hundred miles apart. Right. So anyways. Yeah, this, this whole idea of gravity, of, of course you need it to exist, but there's absolutely no evidence of it. Nobody has ever proved I do it. my it's work. It's a very, very poor theory. Every scientist admits it's a poor theory and that there is no evidence for it. it, it I, I, I can't get a synchronizing time. I can't get a synchronizing time at two locations if gravity doesn't exist. I, I, I fail to see where your argument makes any sense. Like we know for a fact that nearly everything that we call by brand name a satellite signal is just something that comes from some sort of tower it's all radio signal there's of course you yeah, know modern upgraded 1g 3g 4g 5g the whole works we've got all these different signals as well but there's no How's way the tower held up? none of the none of this could possibly work if the earth is moving the speeds that you think it is and you think that gravity is a force of attraction a force of attraction causes things to collide and crash into things it does not cause they them do. to perpetually remain in motion at ridiculous speeds whether they be in front of us behind us beside us it means they're speeding up slowing down changing speeds all the time as i described basically in the last debate, which you obviously heard because you, you put in plenty of super chats. So you heard how I described how impossible the moon is according to the heliocentric model, but you believe all these satellites are also doing the same sort of ridiculous speeds. They cannot possibly do it, and especially not if you're invoking a force of attraction known as gravity. It just can't happen. So everybody sees and experiences gravity every day. It does cause things to attract and come together. So the planets in orbits around sun... So like, uh, I know you might, yeah, I know you deny it, but anyway, so we got comets and stuff. You can see them during certain parts of the year. Every so many years, they come in a pretty um, um, on schedule, right? Same sort of periods of time. And those go, they have a very long elliptical orbit because they are following, falling into the sun, right? But they're going fast enough that they escape the um, gravity of the sun and they can go back out and they stay in that elliptical orbit around the sun. So they do follow into each other because of gravity. I mean, that's that's how gravity works. So and, yeah, and the, 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 like the, it seems like it may like you just have to have this gravity. You've got no proof of it, and yet it, it can't work according to the way you've described well, it. Because that's what I've already described to you. you know, come on, I've been quietly sitting while you're talking. We're trying to be polite here. So in your belief, the heliocentric model has the sun moving five hundred and fourteen 
thousand miles per hour through the galaxy. Now that is a ridiculously fast speed. The Earth itself is only going 66,600 miles per hour around the sun, which means it's moving a sidereal speed as well of its own, of the same as the sun. And so all of these satellites are also doing the same thing. And comets. So these comets that you're saying, what? How many millions of miles away are they? Also following the gravity of the sun. Any example we see of gravity, you see the scientists do it all the time with their with their um, sheets, lycra material and stuff. Everything just crashes into the centre after just a few rotations. There is no way that everything could stay in this perpetual motion of the incredible speeds that you are proposing and still logically work. It's Everything is completely illogical and it seems to me like you're just lacking a little bit of something upstairs to not grasp how that couldn't possibly work because multiple speeds, different directions, one thing going one speed, one direction, doesn't work. That has to go all those speeds all the time. Yeah, the little the analogies we do on Earth where you spin the ball around like a, a, a sheet or whatever they do, like you're describing, that, that's not that's just an analogy of how gravity works. It's not actually how it works. They're just trying to present a representation to students see it works sort of like this right so um and i'm not an expert i'm sure people in chat can explain it all but that's beside the point but all those bodies are staying i i say tethered tether is not a right word it's just an analogy it is a force that keeps the planets in orbit around the sun keeps the moon in orbit around us keeps the satellites in orbit around the earth these numbers sound huge because we're used to going speeds like a few hundred miles an hour at the most right like in a plane we might go 500 miles per hour or something like that but the but um so these numbers sound absurd but that's only to our frame of reference when you look at the speed that the sun is rotating around um in the spiral arm around the the galaxy it's it's not very fast for the sun like in in comparison to the galaxy yeah look you invoke a lot of like fanciful terms and you know i know you're not alone like that and fair enough you admit you don't know what you don't know and i appreciate that and i would also think that a lot of people in the chat don't know what they don't know either so to invoke a term like frames of reference you know it makes it sound a little bit scientific -y and stuff but when it comes down to logic, the nuts and bolts of understanding a real speed, not a relative speed. Now, there's no such thing really as a relative speed. Like, yes, relative to you, something might be moving while you're staying the same speed as the plane. That's about all. But when we talk about real speeds, like the real speed of what the Earth is supposed to be moving around the sun, why does the plane never, ever take into consideration any of that speed? Like, I mean, any time we shot off a rocket to the moon, for example, and the Earth is just shooting off through space at 66,600 miles per hour, that rocket is never going to reach that speed to return to Earth again. We've automatically left it the moment it leaves the frame of reference, which you claim everything has, is inertia. But every example we see of inertia on Earth, if we jumped from the plane, for example, within seconds we've stopped moving the speed of the plane. We're no longer going that speed. So we'd start dropping straight away. Anything that leaves, if you jump off a speeding train, you stop moving that speed. So to say that relative speed and inertia works somehow in your vacuum of space, it's so much easier to just believe what is obvious and what is true, and that is that the Earth isn't moving 
and the plane can fly 500 miles per hour and travel 500 miles an hour because the Earth isn't moving beneath it. It's as simple as that. You keep invoking too many false things to have to stick to your belief. But, you know, if, if a plane took off the Earth and it's travelling towards the west, then the Earth is spinning a 1,000 miles an hour beneath it, so it's travelling 1,500 miles an hour to the west. But no, it's travelling backwards 500 miles an hour to create the illusion of moving towards 500 miles an hour. It's ridiculous. Why not just say it's moving 500 miles per hour while the Earth stays still beneath it? That works. We don't need to invoke silly nonsense ideas to, to defend a silly ancient superstitious belief that says that we're going around the sun when we're obviously not. Yeah, we, we do normally maintain the frame of reference of the Earth for planes. So we don't see the planes going backwards and forward. We see how fast it's going forward in reference to the Earth, right? So we do do that. But if you if you do invoke like the rotation of the Earth, then you can add that speed into the calculation. So the Earth is spinning with the, with the planet and all the air is spinning with the planet too. The plane takes off, goes in that direction. You can do it that way. I don't think it's very useful in day-to-day -day life to do that. I don't do that in my day-to-day -day life. I go 60 miles per hour. I don't take into account how fast the sun orbits the, the galaxy center of the galaxy. I, I mean, I don't do that, but those numbers are there and they exist. But it's not, it's not a belief. It's stuff I do every day for work. Gravity has to exist. You brought up a point about towers earlier, that these things could be up on towers. There's no tower above me. Like, it had to be like right above me on the building, like that. I can't see it. Like unless there's invisible towers holding satellites up in orbit and geostationary orbit, I could not do my tests. They have to exist. Yes. Well, um, obviously, you know, you can listen to your radio in the car without having to see the tower where the radio transmission is coming from. You know, airwaves propagate through the air in a much different way than, say, how water waves propagate across water. Water waves actually require flat water for a water wave to work. So, again, that just automatically destroys any idea of being on a spinning space ball, the fact we have water waves. But air waves are completely different. They can travel vast distances. I've even sat and listened to a guy from Newcastle, Australia, basically communicating directly to Hawaii on a backyard ham radio with a single antenna maybe three times the size of a normal car antenna. It wasn't huge. It was just a very basic sort of setup, illegal, by the way, but he was able to contact Hawaii. Now, that tells me that the radio waves have this ability to travel great distances. They, you don't need to have line of sight of the tower for the radio wave to actually work. The Glober will try and tell us how it's bouncing off the ionosphere and bouncing off the surface and doing all this sort of stuff, but that, that's... That's what you, you have to bring up these sort of uh, weird excuses, whereas you can have these towers pinging out signals for doing exactly what you say you were doing. You haven't really even made that clear exactly what you're doing, why you need these satellites at this stage. But I can tell just by GPS alone that the GPS signal works by being able to detect various signals bounced off of radio towers picked up by the phone or the GPS device and computed onto a map, which can give you a very accurate uh, description of exactly where you are and that's pretty much what i think is all you're doing is you're working off a very similar thing it only requires radio waves it does not require satellites which as i've said like they can't exist they, they just simply can't exist in your belief they're going too many different speeds at once in order to somehow remain very specific and geocentric it's just impossible so um 
Yeah. What exactly is your work that you say you're doing that's, that gets these signals from satellites that you're talking well, about? So we, so it's telecommunication equipment. So we, we inject current at two ends and then we send a light signal through fiber cable between the two ends and they have to be synchronized at the same moment because we have to be able to trip our breakers open circuit those big huge giant circuit breakers you see in substations where the power companies are they have to trip open within five cycles of each other so you can have a hundred mile line both ends there's other ways to see the fault but differential protection is the fastest that we use and it has to be precise but i do want to address um the thing about um wave propagation that you brought up so you said like Waves don't propagate through water. They do propagate through water. Even the water's rough. You just don't see them. But the, those forces do propagate through the water. And it mixes with all the other ripples in the water. So you may not see that nice, pretty wave when, like you see in a calm body of water when you throw a rock into it. But those ripples of that wave do propagate through the water. But that is different from radio waves, right? So RF is um, like radio, or it's it's its own thing. It's electromagnetic force, right? That propagates through the atmosphere, and it does travel line of sight, right? So you can send it broadly. Um, and microwaves are a good one. Like microwaves are higher frequencies; they don't skip. Like you can't send a microwave signal over the curve, right? So you have to have line of sight. There are some exceptions to that where. There's some, um, I think there's some, um, like one exception where there's, it's like, maybe it's like low. I can't remember. Anyways, microwaves have to have line of sight and they are radios. It's things like um, your ham radio. So I used to use, I didn't use ham radios. My dad used to use ham radios. I won't say if he was doing it legal or not. I'm sure he was not. <laughs> but um, those skips that we're talking about were the, um, the the radio waves skipping off the ionosphere you can calculate based on sun acti solar activity based on the time of year how far that signal could travel like we talked to people from australia in washington or oregon wherever we were at the time and, and it was but it was only during certain times of the year during certain type of solar and stuff like that certain times of the day too because you can get um more propagation skip at night than you can during the day so yeah yeah well i think you've just basically debunked the fact that the earth could be a globe then haven't you because you said they need a line of sight to propagate and then you've also just turned For around microwaves and that, these, that these um satellite images you use are through wires on earth i mean we it's well known that nearly all of the internet communication across earth 95 percent plus of it is done through undersea cables. That's how we're communicating right here and now. Um, so the, the say that you even we need use radios. I like, uh, we're using radios now. I thought were you were talking about. Your well, we job can. Like you said you've sent light signals through cables. So you know yeah. your, your story's all over Two the things. place. As you'd expect Two from things. anybody who's confused about the way they talk about things. And as I said, with water waves is that they can only propagate across flat water. Even if the water is rough and bumpy and already rough, they're not going to propagate across curved water. And with 70% of the surface of the known Earth being curved, according to you guys, curved oceans, which is just a ridiculous concept that water could even do that in the first place, the fact that you can have a wave going over curved water, 
the wave would flatten it in the first place. So all land must be measured above sea level to begin with. So that's how we know that the Earth is flat. We know it's stationary by the fact we see the same stars going around all the time. We know that the sun moves exactly 24 hours in every cycle. You haven't even addressed that yet because that's what matches our clocks. You know, the sidereal day is not what we set our clocks to. It's the sun. And, uh, and, and you're still just clinging on to satellites for some reason. So, yeah, well, we can move on to clocks. If you... The other day, talking about satellites, all oh, that proves we're on a spinning space ball or something. I tried listening to that one with my son, and we were just cracking up laughing. And he's not even a flat earther. Well, we can move on to clocks, but I just want to point out, like, my work I do, we do have to see the satellites to synchronize when we send the signals. So we need a time clock synchronized, send signals, and those signals have to match the times have to match for us to know what the power is at both terminals to be able to protect the line. So I don't want to go into all the math involved. It's not that important, but it is two things we're doing. Let's make that clear. But I, let's move on to the 24-hour clock, right? So you say we lose four minutes a day. So that's sort of an average, right? So, um, But it is, a, it is a case that not every day is four, we're losing four minutes. Some days are over 24 hours. Some days are less than 24 hours, right? So on average, we're losing four minutes a day. No, if we were going around the sun, you know, this is very specific. So the sun is at the center. And so therefore, we're making a circle, our annual orbit around the sun. So if the Earth itself is spinning at a very specific set amount of time, and each time it moves a little bit further around the sun, 365 and a quarter of them, then it will be out of reckoning to the sun by four minutes per day. So this, there's no other way around it. This is a logical mathematical engineering problem whereby anything measured at exactly 24 hours each single time going around a centre point will be out of reckoning by it. Now, if we didn't use the clock, as I said, if we just stuck to the um, sundial, it could work. But we use very specific, very exact measurements, clocks, watches, digital watches, the whole lot, 24 hours every single day. So the only way that can work is if it's the sun itself moving around above us and returning back 24 hours. Now, you can give or take a little bit because we know that over the period of time the sun gets higher to give the, the summer in the inner hemisphere of our Earth model, it goes around the equator. As it gets higher, it seems to make a smaller circle. So as it comes lower, it seems to make a bigger circle, but it still takes exactly 24 hours to go around us each and every time. And that's what we set our clocks to. So if we were going around the sun, we'd have to adjust our clocks by four minutes every day, regardless, to, to keep the sun overhead every time because, you know, obviously midday is looking towards the sun in the centre. Midnight is looking away from it outwards. So without adjusting the clock, it just doesn't work. It's, it's, it has to be. <laughs> the length of the day does get longer and shorter the year progresses, right? In the, yeah, so the length of sunlight and night. Yeah, so the length of the, the number of minutes during the day is not always four minutes less. It's like something like 23 hours, 56 minutes and some odd seconds, actually. On average, but some of those are over 24 hours. Some of them are less than 23 hours and 56 minutes. So it's it's an the average is 23 do, hours do and 56 minutes. And we, huh? 
So the Earth is the in elliptical orbit, like about. you sort of described. We're not talking yes. about daylight hours. The daylight hours is on average 12 I know. hours. In well, I'm, less, I'm in progressed. More. Okay, but to, I, to, yes. to then try and put this to a 23 or 24-hour timepiece, it's got nothing to do with the length of daylight hours. It's got to do with the exact length of period of time between well, midday one day and midday the next day, and that's exactly 24 hours. And so if we are travelling according to a clock around the sun, then we are out by four minutes every day. There's, there's no plus or minus. It's just, well, you know, plus or minus a few seconds, but it is the exact same amount every single time because we measure the exact period of time by the clock every day. Our clocks aren't, they, they're 24-hour clocks, right? And they mm. match the orbit of the Earth, right? And we, we lose four mm. minutes a day because we're not precise. They should be 23 hours and 56. Well, they shouldn't be 23 hours and 56 minutes. Otherwise, the the when daylight would happen would change if we didn't have the clocks that we did, that, right? That's so, the whole point of my argument. Obviously, you can't quite grasp it. Yeah, I've, I've tried to describe it as simply as I can. That if we okay, let me let's sun, break it down. The clock needs to be adjusted by four minutes per day to keep the sun overhead at midday. It is an inescapable logical conclusion that anybody yes. with the ability to think about it can understand but the fact that we measure it exactly 24 hours every single day can only be because it's the sun moving around above us it's the only way it works why do we add an extra day every four years to our calendar because the number of rotations of the sun matching the number of rotations of the sidereal day which is the stars before the stars to return back to exactly their starting period is 365.25 rotations of the sun it's not quite exact of course but it's more or less so every four years if we add an extra day to the calendar which is what we judge our um our, our sidereal year by the solar year, so the sun spiraling up, spiraling down with two equinoxes in the middle. It keeps those days, according to our calendar, on the same day, more or less, every year, if we add that extra day every four years, because it's the stars in motion that give us the sidereal day and sidereal year. Whereas if we just did it off the sun, you know, we might just count 360 and assume, oh, that's close enough, we'll, we'll just call it that. But then our calendars won't match. The, the equinoxes and solstices will always be different, but because we measure it, the sun compared to the stars, but by the time the stars return to exactly where they were the previous year, there's a quarter of a day's difference. So the sun and the stars don't exactly match. So that is why every four years we will add an extra day to our calendar so that they stay the same over a long except period every of time. Four, except, except every, every hundred years. Well, except every hundred years. It's every 400 years we uh, we add it, right? We, I think every 400 years we add it. We skip it, one. We I skip, no, every, every 100 years, years we skip one, I thought. Anyways, it doesn't matter. I forget. That's right. It's <laughs> I'll just take it. But it, it is, it is four. So if you take four minutes times the number of days in the year times four, that equals 24 hours. That's right. Roughly. Yeah. Four minutes. That's four minutes you're talking about. That's the leap yeah. year. We, that's right. That's why just every like, four years. We're looking at the sun today, right? Like, let's just use today as our arbitrary example. We're looking at the sun at midday. So that would mean that after 365 and a quarter rotations, we'd be looking at the sun at midday again if we we're traveling exactly 24 hours on each rotation around the sun. But because, <laughs> because it's the sun going around well, above us, it matches every day of the year. 
We don't have to wait 365 and a quarter rotation to have it back overhead every day. All right. So I, to me, it's a leap year. That's how we account for the extra four minutes. So anyways, and it's not changing. Yeah, the. I know that, that, that's the trouble is, as I said in my opening statement, is that most people gloss over it because it's a little bit too complicated to actually understand how it would, in fact, actually work. Whereas if you just look purely at the no, logic I understand. and put the sun in the middle stationary, like assume it's not moving, and put the, sun, the earth moving around its axis to go around the sun with 365 and a quarter rotations, then every single day, if you measure an exact period of time, the sun would be slightly out of reckoning, which is why sun uh, day and night would swap places after six months because we're using an exact fixed clock. Now, if we didn't use the exact fixed clock and we just use the sundial and the clock's automatically adjusted by that four minutes every day, then it would work to have the sun appearing overhead. But that in itself destroys heliocentrism, which is the point of this debate. And I think I can just rest my case well, on that. The clock would just be whatever the, the rotation the earth is. That's it. But anyways, your seasons would get off. You have to adjust for seasons and everything else. But you you know you that. Would. Like We've been doing this for thousands of years. We keep, the, we keep the clock at 24 hours every day. We don't adjust it. We can... We it could have it. A, we have hour long days. I mean, we just arbitrarily choose it because it's like our cycle, the diurnal cycle we live in. But I do, yeah. I do have like, um, like go back, like, um, sure. so like my view is that there's one sun, like we orbit one sun, right? So, so how many suns do, are there in your model or in your well, concept of reality? In my concept of reality, that's that's a better way of putting it. Because the yeah. fact is, when we do see the sun, what we're looking at is our apparent version of it. You can tell this simply by, say, if you're watching the sunset and you walked along the beach, the sun will move with you as will the, the reflection of the sun move with you as you move. So you can extrapolate from that that, uh, say, there's 50 other people all stretched out across the beach. They're all looking out at their own personal reflection of the sun coming across the water. So they're seeing the sun in a different spot. So you could then also extrapolate then that if hypothetically there was a different person every single spot right across the entire beach or you know the entire continent as far as you want, there would be an individual sun with an individual reflection for each and every one of them. And uh, if it's just one sun, of course, we're all seeing the same sun, but we're all seeing our own version of it doing something completely different. I don't see the sunlight reflecting to their feet, someone 200 metres down the beach. I see it reflecting to my feet. But technically then, the whole water is lit up by the same sunlight reflecting across it, but I don't see that. So that's why I say we see our own version of the sun and therefore there must be as many versions of the sun at any given time as there are people with eyes or plants with feelings that can feel the sunlight, anything that can perceive the sunlight, that's how many versions of the sun there are at any given time. And you can't you can't pinpoint it down to just one. The minute you do, you're wrong. Because if so, say I could travel instantaneously really, really fast and go 500 miles away. So I'm watching sunset happening here and then boom, or say somebody's got a webcam going, they're watching it there. We're seeing the same sun in two completely different locations. Now, this is the biggest mistake that we've made throughout history is that we're assuming it's the same sun in the same spot. So if we try and triangulate to that sun, it's going to tell us that it's an infinite distance away, like 93 million miles or something. 
Whereas in reality, it might just be a hotspot in our firmament, just 70 miles high. But because we see our unique perspective of it in a line of sight, it could actually be thousands and thousands of miles away. We're just seeing a different version of it to our unique point of view. So that's why I say, yeah, um, it is definitely a very subjective thing. And to try and uh, extrapolate facts to say this is exactly how far away it is, it's always going to be wrong. There's nothing we can do about it. It's just the way it is. It's the way we see. So I understand like we can only experience reality through our own subjective experience, but I would say there's a distinction between my experience of reality and what is real, right? So I might experience false things. To me, there's one sun. We and I do agree we all experience everything differently in our in our own unique ways. But I wouldn't say that everybody has a different sun at all. I mean, to, to me, that doesn't make sense. But I can understand how you could, like, like I don't, I don't understand it. Actually, it's not the way I think. But um, but what no, about no, other well, claims? Do you think, do you think well everything is? Sorry. Do you think everything's true that people experience? Like, is it true because they experience it? Well, it's true to us. Like. The person experiencing the thing, for them, it is true. But we can't base all of reality upon our own personal experience of it. You know, we have to understand that there is that many different versions of it, and each and every one of them is unique, and it is special, for want of a better word. Um, so, yeah, we can't say that ours is more correct than another's, but when it comes down to scientific observations of things, that is exactly what they're doing. They're saying, right. I'm setting up this equipment. I'm taking this observation. This is reality. This is what's happening. Whereas a person, as I say, 500 miles away, might be seeing a completely other version of the same reality, but it's different. And, and you can't put the two together and say they are the same reality. They're different versions of reality. And that's pretty much one of the, I think, one of the most profound things about our reality we live in. And while people will come up with ideas like maybe we live in a simulation, because in a sense, Everything that we experience, we only experience within, and quite a lot realism. of philosophical masters over the period, over the history of time, have all said everything is within. And I can understand where they're coming from. You know, what we think is without, we only see within. If we lost our senses, yeah, you know, it wouldn't exist to us. Yeah, yeah, I believe in indirect realism. I don't believe I experience reality directly. I think it gets translated by my brain before. I experience it in my in another part of my brain, basically. But so, but it that is sort of what we tried to do. Like we we said, well, everybody's experiencing things differently. So how can we determine if what your experience is, is true and what you are experiencing is true? How can we remove that subjective lens to try to figure out what is objective about reality? Right. So that is what we try to do with science. We try to create an objective standard to try to remove as much of that subjective experience of reality from our knowledge as possible. Now, it's unavoidable that all of our knowledge, even the, the knowledge we perceive, why Neil deGrasse Tyson, I did that little thing, um, is through our, our own personal experience, right? But um, um, but the knowledge we're gaining is we're trying our best to create objective standards for knowledge, right? And and I live my life as if those objective standards work. And I'm able to do my job, my work, because 
electricity works a certain way. Um, radio communication stuff works a certain way. Electronic devices work a certain way. Um, gravity works a certain way. Just it, it has to. Now, maybe that's how I'm experienced my life, right? Maybe I'm delusional, but I don't think I am. I think most of the people around me experience the same thing I do, and they, they look at the same results I do, and they're drawing the similar conclusions to I, that, that I do. And not many people draw the conclusions that you are. It used to be like, um, what is it, like there's direct realists that believe everything they experience is absolutely true. They don't believe they see anything through some type of process in their mind. And there's idealists that think all thoughts and stuff have some ontological ex- significance or something. I'm not a philosopher beside the point, but I, I don't think that's true. I believe everything is physical. It's what I experience. I stick my hand in a fire fire and know how much, how much I want to not feel the burn. When I stick my hand in the fire, my hand burns, right? That's an interesting thing you bring up. Do you, do you think fire is physical? Yes. Okay. That's one of those ones I'm a little bit confused about. I don't know if it's physical or chemical or something in between. Well, but, um, yeah. Well, we it's, know, it's, we, we're muddy with the language, right? When we talk about physical and everything, yeah. we're very muddy. So to me, physical is just like the laws of physics govern how those interactions work and the excitation of the molecules, right? That's what you, that's how you feel heat is it excites the molecules in your hand and causes them to heat up, right? And burn and whatever. I'm not an expert either on that, but. That's like it. Just about anything could come down to then being a philosophical preference or how we prefer to believe. Some people might say it's just the nerve endings picking up the sensation of heat causing the physical pain. And I think that's, you know, one of the ways that we do understand reality is through physical sensations, you know, whether it be through pain or joy or whatever we're, we're looking out at. But um, at the end of the day, really, it all does boil down into what you see is what you get. And, you know, obviously colour doesn't exist to a blind man, so it's a bit silly to talk about a red sunset to somebody who's never seen colour, for example. You just can't explain the colour red. You have to experience it. So life is basically experiential things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to, to try and rope this all back to our topic of this debate is that heliocentrism just seems completely illogical. It doesn't add up in any sense. We've got no sensation of the motion of the earth, no sensation of a spinning. I used to watch a lot of sunsets when I was younger. I was a very sort of spiritual type of guy. You know, as a teenager, I'd go out watching sunsets all the time. And I used to sit on top of the sand hill watching the sunset and physically believe I was feeling the motion of the earth spinning away towards the east to create the illusion of the sun setting. I fully believed that stuff. That was like, that was my sense of existence on this magical little blue ball in this Goldilocks zone going around the sun. So for me to eventually come to the conclusion that that was all nonsense, it was just something in my head, it literally is what it was. You can believe whatever you want and it might seem real at the time, but as soon as you come to the understanding that the earth is stationary, that water seeks its level, or land is measured above sea level, then it makes sense that we are not on a spinning ball going around the sun. And that is why, for example, every night of the year, I can look out my door and I can see the constellation of the Southern Cross. I can see it every night of the year. 
So if I was on the other side of the sun six months later looking out at completely different stars, I should not be seeing the same constellations at all, but I do. I see it every night of the year. I did it three years in a row once I became <laughs> aware of the flat earth. I can see the Southern Cross, and I'm not far enough Can south, you see the Northern Star? No. You showed a, a, an example of the um, the star trails of, from the Earth's point of view. Now, as far south as Australia is, it's not that far south. We're not far enough south to see perfect star trails around the pole. The pole's way down there, for example. We should be looking at and seeing all the stars doing exactly as you showed in your diagram, rising in the east and setting in the west. But they don't do that. So, no, I can't see this the um, northern pole star at all. You know, that's, that's how it was. the world was calculated in the first place, that where the equator is, that's the equidistant point away from Polaris that it merges into the convergence point. And that's how we drew our maps. So we navigated by the stars and the equator becomes that point. So everything beyond that point is what we call that underworld, the outer world, south, you know, sail outwards becomes southwards. It's all it is, you know, we're inwards and outwards. It's has never been proven to be as a result of curvature. You know, everything with distance gets lower and lower as you get further away from it. So as you measure Polaris getting lower and lower, that's where our latitude lines were drawn. And they used a compass on the map. They drew a circle on the map. It's all done in circles, bigger and bigger ones, until we get to the equator and then it well, suddenly goes pear-shaped. <laughs> we weren't that good at navigation before we developed better maps right before we understand stood that the earth was curved right so we could navigate the globe like you know i don't know was wrong too people always say why was the sailor too like you brought up there's a lot of evidence of um there's even like egyptian hieroglyphs here in australia i do want to ask a question question. so we've been navigating the the earth for a very very long time and it's got nothing to do with they might not have been navigating the globe, the, the navigating around the area, like how far away did the Egyptians go? But I do want to, I do want to have a question, right? Um, sure. Where is the center of the Earth? The center of the Earth would be what I'd call the magnetic north pole. How do so you know that's the center? Well, all compasses point towards it, and so we've just drawn our maps in accordance to that. I mean, it doesn't mean it's the center; it's just the way that we've worked it out over the centuries that in a way that works for us logically how to draw maps is that if the magnet points towards the inside that's north if it's pointing outwards that's southwards and east and west are just bigger and bigger circles the further outwards we go don't, but don't the star trail the star trails don't match the magnetic north though right the star trails are definitely an interesting conundrum when it comes to the to the outer side of the equator. Like, I won't deny that, but I've never seen what people say that that we're seeing is seeing them going around a center point for one thing. Yeah. You know, like we see them. If you go night. to the north, so, so if you go to the north pole, it should time. see. Yeah. yeah. So, so it all works in the north perfectly fine. As soon as we get to the outer side of the equator, that's where things, as Neil deGrasse Tyson says, go pear shaped. But basically, a pear-shaped where oblate spheroid. <laughs> where we see the uh, Southern Cross in Australia, you know, it's it's daytime over in South America or in South Africa. It's only just at the very dawn of Western Australia. So it's 
becoming lights, we stop seeing it, that the people in South Africa start to see the Southern Cross. So it's exactly how we see the same sun for daytime, we see the same stars at nighttime, but we don't see them through the day. And that still works as if they're all going around Polaris. It looks different because we've basically turned around and we're looking the other way. It's the only way I can describe it. So, so we know where the magnetic north is, right? So it's 1,200 miles from where the center of the star trails would be for the the northern pole, right? So, like, so the the way the northern the the star trails would look is going to be different at magnetic north than it would be at uh, where the star trails would look like a great circle above your above straight above you, right? Yeah, like I, we know. I can't right? I can't make sense of that actually even on the globe model. Like how do people say, let's just say 45 degrees south, so the equator is 90 degrees, or is it the other way around? The pole is 90 degrees, the equator is zero. So if we said about 45 degrees, how is it then by aligning a camera to the North Pole that even the stars do make perfect circles? It doesn't sort of add up to me. You'd have to be pretty much within the Arctic Circle for star trails to work according to the globe model. So to me, well, you'd have to go to the North Pole. You'd have to be at the pole nearly, or just you know, as far as Finland, maybe. But you get all the way down to say, yeah, you know, I don't know, <laughs> say Japan. But there's people that have been to the North Pole. Tend to work. People have been to the North Pole, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like okay, perfect star trails from the North Pole absolutely should work. Yeah, you know, according to the globe, yeah. but the further and further south you go towards the equator, the the less circular they should look. Yeah, you know, they should be looking more and more. They do you know, big egg shape. Well, they so move. Forth. the The circle move. So the circle goes from here, like this, like straight up. If you're at the North Pole, not the magnetic north, because magnetic north would be a little bit like this. So as you move towards the equator, it moves down, right? Like the image showed. And that's what we observe. So, yeah, but it doesn't so we, add up. we point closer to the equator you are, the, the less you should see circles. Well, yeah, we're pointing the, the camera the at the North Star. Like we're not pointing it at the North Pole. We're we're identifying the North Star and we're pointing the camera yeah. at the North Star. Yeah. yeah. It just doesn't add up to me. Like even when I was still a full-on helioist like yourself. And I still believe that. I still couldn't make heads or tails of how the star trails work because why are we always looking up at the pole from either side of the Earth at night and can see a pole star in the first place? I mean, even that shouldn't happen every night of the year. It's, it's like we're always looking up somehow. So to me, the star's doing what they're doing. And the way I can see it is, yes, the world might well be infinite, and so it makes more sense that there would be more and more solar systems, other suns, outside of Antarctica. And so why wouldn't they have their own star trails as well? Like it's, it's definitely something that needs to be studied. I've got no definite answer on that one. Well, I think we understand it with the understanding of reality that I have. Like that's the axes, you know, the, the Earth, the globe, the way yeah, yeah. the explanation is it, that's where the axes of the, of the Earth is. And it just so happens there's a star where we can look to see where north is from different parts of the earth, right? And I'm yeah, not an expert. Anywhere. I'm not a cosmologist. Exactly. But from anywhere on the surface of the earth, you're always looking up at it. But we're also then on the other side of the earth, also looking up to see 
where there would be a southern polar star if there was one. I mean, it's just blank sky, but there's allegedly a constellation there, Sigma Octantis and whatnot. And, um, you know, if there was a pole star there, we would be seeing it. Why are we always seeing it up both directions from a globe, a spinning ball? It, it doesn't really make sense. Like half you the mean, year we should uh, be looking a different way or even at night. I mean, we're not far enough south well, to be looking directly south to the pole star. Let me, so I got this star trail thing. So like if one, we're at yeah. the North Pole, yes. So the North Pole looks like that, right? So it's not looking straight up from the North Pole. Yeah, look at the all those straight pole, lines. You're going to see there. different. See, see how it's much just of the a world graphical is seeing straight lines? Yeah, yeah, but that's my point. Most of the world is seeing straight lines. It's only when you're really, really close to the poles that you're going to start to see them as going around a polar star. Yeah. So, but people do see this, like on these different points of the Earth. Do you agree with that? Yeah, but we're not far enough south, is what I'm saying. Like, it doesn't make sense. You are. You you are. The the reason we see a sunrise and a moonrise is because of the Earth's spin. Then the stars should be more or less behaving the same until you're very, very close to the poles to start seeing the circular star trails around the poles. It just doesn't add up. I'm looking at images from South Africa, and it looks pretty good to me. Like, it looks like a circle like this from South Africa. Yeah, exactly. But why like did you see that south. also from Australia? And also well, from isn't South Australia America? further north? Yeah. So South America, you see that. And from South Africa, you see that. But so it depends on where you're at, your latitude is, south. or your longitude, right? Yeah, most um, of the, the star trails from Australia, I think, were done from a place called Coonabarabran, which isn't actually that much further south from where I live. Yeah, you know, a few hundred k's or something. It's not a huge amount. And the fact that we can see perfect star trails from here and there and there, it doesn't make sense. What do you mean perfect star trails? Perfectly circular star trails around the center point. We'd all have to be virtually wrapped. Yeah, they look like that. Pointing outwards at the pole. Well, they're not perfectly. They're still up, right? So it's something like this, you you think? Like if you were to draw a line from you to the center? Yeah, I I can't understand how a pole star would even be fixed. You know, surely it should rise and set as well. So I could probably do that. Like if if I got spent the time and we did the trigonometry, I could probably figure out how what it should look like from where you are at, just with basic trigonometry. Okay, well, um, well, well I've, I've thought of a, um, a a model that anybody should be able to do, and you know, I did propose it again the other day and just said, if we have a, you know, a globe, a normal classroom globe, and we sit it on its tilt and we use the laser to point out from either pole, exactly, so you've got two pole stars, and we affix two little cameras onto this globe, and technically, we should be able to put it in a big warehouse room and put a heap of Christmas fairy lights or something around just to imitate the stars. And we should be able to align each camera from either side, let's say 45 degrees, towards the pole stars. And then by spinning that ball, I don't think we'd get perfectly circular star trails around the pole star. I think we'd struggle to even stay aligned to the pole star. I just don't think it could work. And that's that's my well, logical discussion after years and years of thinking about this. So if anybody can do this, make this model, I would love to see it because I don't think it can be done. 
Well, it just be it's just engineering, right? If we can keep it that stable enough and to make sure the errors aren't that great. So, I mean, we're talking about celestial bodies, right? The the Earth is huge. The stars are very very distant. That's so what you it's mean. a different that's scale. So about them being billions of light years. No, away no, no, no. I'm saying you could do it. You could simulate it in a in a warehouse. You just would have to have, have precise enough equipment to remove. Yeah. Um, as much air from the measurements as possible. You could do that. It, it, it should work just fine. You don't have to worry about the air. It's got nothing to do with that. It's just a matter of having the time-lapse cameras pointing out at the, the pole stars and showing how, as the Earth spins, I'm just saying, that all the other stars around it are making perfectly circular star trails until you get close to the equator. So it shouldn't be that difficult. It should be really Are you seeing look at the actual stars with the camera? The yeah, actual have, stars have, in the sky? The camera on either hemisphere at about 45 degrees, pointed towards a pole star on each side. So one up, one down at the pole stars, which are created by lasers coming out from the Earth. So there can be no denying they're polar aligned. You know, they're definitely true. And then all the other stars surrounding it that are just light sitting there, they should also appear then to make perfect circles around it. I mean, we, we have star trail pictures. I don't understand the yeah. difference. I I... I I think you need to draw a picture to see what you're trying to explain because I think we have pictures and people have done it since we've had cameras to show the star exactly. trails in the sky. Exactly, but, but so it doesn't make sense on the model according to the belief of the model. So what I we're think seeing... It, I think it only makes sense on the model. No, it's it's the same it's idea as you know, looking at basketballs and saying, well, basketballs around there for the basketball court is flat, is mm -hmm. is round as well. But you know, that's that's the same sense of saying that the star trails doing what they do defines what the Earth is. And so if don't we you have to, to have... make the model, if we tried to make that model of the Earth, it just isn't going to work. I'm telling you. And and if we made a model of the Earth with models of stars like that CGI, I did. <laughs> No CGI, right? Just, just do it like in reality with with actual so like light that. in a warehouse room, like that. Do oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we should be able to do it. Is and there we will be it. error because you have to you have to be able to spin the thing. Um, so you, you, it, it's going to have a little. I'm not going to see it has any measurable wobble. I'm just thinking as an engineer that you'd have to make it <laughs> worse. And, and that's, move. That's, that's just assuming though too that the Earth is staying perfectly still and not orbiting the sun. Because, I mean, as soon as we bring in the orbit of the sun, this is the equivalent I've often used as an example, just online chatting to people and stuff, is saying, like, if we took, if we had a camera and we looked at a Ferris wheel in the distance and the Ferris wheel is at night, so it's covered in lights, and if we took a, a time-lapse camera picture of that, you know, over a period of a few minutes, it'll make perfectly circular star trails of the lights on the thing. But what we have to try and understand in the, the heliocentric model is that we should be doing that from the back of a car or back of a truck. So we've got our camera mounted on it, moving 65 times faster than what the Ferris wheel itself is rotating. And you know for a fact that those star trails aren't going to be long, glaring streaks. And this is what the heliocentric model is. We're rotating around the Why sun. Why would the car have to be moving? We're, we're because we're orbiting the sun, are we not? Isn't that what heliocentrism is all about? We're orbiting the sun. Yeah, very slowly. Very slowly. Very slowly. 1.6 million miles a day. 66,600 miles an hour. We're only rotating 1 degree a day. 1,040 miles an hour. Yeah, the, well, okay. 
Come on, come on, it's Iron Horse. It's pre- sideways. Yeah, but we, we are seeing the we are seeing the stars are that are are very very far away, right? We're seeing the sun is very far away, so you can't just hold one thing static and ignore the rest of the explanations in the model. I mean, that's sort of unfair, right? Well, I'm, so I'm when we see you the, the sun, when I say we don't assume the sixty-five times faster rate of motion just to have star trails. We should be moving linearly, 65 times faster than we're rotating. So a star trail, you know, just gently going around the middle star, we're actually going 65 times faster to orbit the sun all the time. So we're not we're not moving hardly at all in reference to the stars. We you can't. It's, I think there's parallax or something you can measure that, but we're not moving yeah, well, that far in reference the, to the, the stars. Parallax. The parallax of the stars should actually change far greater if they are as far apart from one another as we're told. If we're told, like, if we look mm. at a constellation and this star is, say, 55 light years away and that star is 155 light years away, then as we're moving, they should move in relation to each other even more so. But they don't. It's almost as though every single star moves exactly the same right amount of speed at the right time all the time just for insignificant little blue dot Earth. And that just makes no sense. In the heliocentric model, again, everything works to exist to look the same for us here on Earth. It's, it's another thing that just destroys heliocentrism. Yeah. I mean, but that is because we see they're very, very, very far away, and they move very, very slow in relationship to each other. Right? That's, that's what we say. So we explain all that. In the in the explanation, yeah, but but it's it's we're the ones that are doing all the all the motions too, independently of what they're doing. So we're even moving, they're moving but, slowly in relation to one another, yeah, you know, we're told the sun is moving half a million miles an hour, and that adds up over time. You know, if we're going around the sun as the sun is moving through the galaxy, that's obviously all the stars are moving in motion with the sun. So you're saying the whole entire universe is heliocentric, not just. You know, eight or nine planets going around the sun. You think well, the whole galaxy does? No, I don't believe the sun is the center of anything. Actually, it's a it's the center of its own gravity. Well, let's say that, right? So but that's and, what heliocentrism is all about: the solar system, solar, soul, yes, the sun. The I agree. Earth goes around the sun, but that's that's how we use to understand the 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 rest of the. Um, cosmology is by that model looking at celestial mechanics with our solar system to try to understand how the galaxy works to try to understand how the galaxy works in relationships to others the heliocentric model is not the center the, the sun's not the center of reality that's not what we believe right no but it's what you believe though as far as the solar system is concerned solar system is that the earth to for, for us to measure one year is for us to go around the sun once. And, yeah. and we do move. Rotating on our axis once every 24 hours. So all these motions yeah. should be showing completely different motions of the stars. They should be completely different every night. The whole model falls apart the minute you invoke heliocentrism to it. If we put the Earth flat and stationary at the bottom of it all and what we see above us is the things doing as they do as we observe it, that works. It works perfectly fine. It repeats year after year after year. Constellations remain exactly the same. The sun takes exactly 24 hours to go around above us. The moon does its own little thing, 50 minutes slower per day. It works. 
So your model is in the time broken. scales. You've in the nothing. time scales we measure, in the time scales we experience, it 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 works, right? But the the eventually it takes two hundred thirty million years, according to the the knowledge of physics we have, to rotate around the center of the Milky Way. So we will change positions in relationship to the center of our Milky Way, to other galaxies and stuff but, like that. Over time, it's just so slow. Over such a long period of time that none of us are going to be around to see it or witness it. It's, well, it's, it's just mad. Like, I mean, back when the Georgia well, guys physics. came before they got demolished, every night of the year, you could look through a, a, lot, a hole drilled through it and see Polaris fixed. Exactly. You know, that thing stood for over 40 years. That Polaris never changed. There are other things like one of these... Um, uh, it's a war memorial thing, and it lines up on the 11th to the 11th, 11 o'clock every year, whatever. And the, the lights coming through five different pillars line up perfectly every year. None of those things would work. We'd have to wait 200 and however many million years, you said, before that would line up again exactly. But they work all the time, consistently. And it's just convenient to be able to say, well, in another 30,000 years, we'll have a different pole star or something when no one's going to be around to see it. It's just an argument from convenience, not based on facts, not based on observations. So I don't know why you would even try and argue them as a, a point that you can defend in a public debate. Well, it's, it's based on observations. It's based on our understanding of reality. It's based on physics. Right, based on the laws of planetary motion, based on yeah, absolute fantasy. There's been no detection of planetary motion. Like, what what's your best proof that the Earth itself is moving? Give me one example that proves the Earth is moving. Um, I do a test all the time to measure between two locations that require that gravity exists. That doesn't prove the Earth is moving. Sorry, like I want some it has actual to move evidence. For that the to Earth exist. Is Actually, see the when the moon, we see the sun. Yeah. We we send ships up to um, we send a ship to Mars. We send ships all over the place. The uh, with the you don't really to Mars, do you? The 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 Webb's telescope. We're taking beautiful images of like distant celestial bodies. But we, we know for a fact that nothing's ever left low Earth orbit. You see, nothing ever. You see, it's fantasy. Come on, come on. Okay, yeah. let's let's pull that back a little bit. You say it's fantasy, but you're saying your own subjective truth is real. Yeah, but I base it on reality, and I base it on the that, deduction of things that can be actually measured. Like I mean, do you think people can have delusions and low Earth orbit? And, I want to be clear. I'm not saying you have delusions. Do you believe people can have actual delusions and that are not real? Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously, I'm talking to somebody who thinks that we've sent robots <laughs> to Mars, <laughs> a ball of gas or a yeah. light. In the sky. Now, my knowledge is subject to the information, right? So mm -hmm. it's subject to the knowledge I have, right? It's not based on me experiencing it personally being on Mars, exactly. right? But so, but I don't think my experience is necessarily accurately portrays reality, right? I can be wrong. Like I know people that suffer from um, delusions. Um, yeah, I mean a lot of people. I have think that family members. 
there is a part of our brain, you know, they call it the reptilian mind, that cannot discern between what we see and what is real. So when we watch a movie, there is a part of our brain that is fully deceived and thinks that's real. And some people take that to the next level and think that they do live on some sort of world like, um, what, what's that movie that just came out again? Um, Avatar. Avatar, yeah, yeah. So people actually take this stuff quite seriously. A lot of people take Star Trek seriously. They take all sorts of things seriously, Star Wars. that It becomes a part of their reality to the point they can't discern between actual reality and the fantasy anymore. And we do spend a lot of our time in our imaginations. I mean, we dream every night. I know I do. I have some far-out vivid dreams. Even last night I had some wicked ones. But, you know, I know the difference between when I wake up what was fantasy and what's reality. And I think that's the difference between being delusional and being grounded in reality. And basically being grounded means earthed. So if you're not earthed, if you think the earth is a spinning space ball hurtling through space, you're not grounded. You, your mind is out there somewhere. So you, you are lost in space, literally. My, my knowledge and that I exist, and I think we use to try to determine what is objectively true to remove things like my own personal subjective experience about reality. And really that's um, it, but might I don't know. I don't have much else to see on the topic. This might be an opportunity to jump into the Q and a want to say a couple of things, housekeeping wise folks in particular, our guests are linked in the description box below. If you haven't checked out their links, what are you waiting for? You can even open up a separate tab in case you want to keep watching this debate live. In addition, we also link our guests in the description box for each podcast episode, as this debate will end up on the Modern Day Debate podcast, which you can find at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, every single podcast out there, you name it, we are on there. We're going to jump into the Q&A, so if you happen to have a question, you can still submit. We are we're probably getting to that point of where we it might get read, so we're going to try to move fast. So, want to say, in addition... If you haven't yet, consider sharing this video as that really does help Modern Day Debate grow. We do appreciate when you guys do that. And we see the stats show that a lot of you guys really do. So we want to say thanks. Seriously, we do appreciate you sharing. So this first question coming in for, I'm assuming that Flat Earth, I mean, uh, Iron Horse is uh, using the restroom. So we'll give him just a moment. But want to say, Ozzy, and thanks for being with us. It's been a juicy debate tonight. I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah. Amazing. All right, we're going to jump right into these. Let me at least start with one for Ozian, and that way, even though Iron Horse is uh, in the hot tub or wherever you might be, we can nonetheless <laughs> jump into these. I had to get the air conditioning. Did you like my video? I'll send you that video, Iron Horse, so you can have it with your NASA tattoo. So, which, which one? The one with you, the lasers coming out of your eyes. Anyways, you have a NASA tattoo? Do either of you? Okay, <laughs> this one from thanks so much thunderstorm says couldn't the earth be considered irregularly shaped with a spherical atmosphere as a more accurate depiction um no i mean the, the nature of water itself determines the shape of the earth we, we can't go beyond that 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 is the discerning point of what we know the shape of the earth to be. Now, the atmosphere could be slightly rounded. I don't deny that. I think maybe we have a, a dome, and that's the way that the sun, when it projects through it, creates the amount of sunlight that we see over the seasons. But 
that to think that we could be a spinning space ball going through space with an atmosphere if the universe is a vacuum just doesn't work. That all the the atmosphere will just dissipate instantly to to the vacuum of space. You got it. Thoughts on that, Ozian? Um, I just want to say if the atmosphere is just curved, there's no reason the water can't be curved either. But and, and it doesn't escape to space because of gravity. You got it. This one coming in from Dario DeJuric. Let me know if you pronounce it right. It says, amazing intro, Iron Horse. You already won this debate. These globies have no chance of going up against you in a debate. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. I um, I finished writing it again this morning. I thought I'd be able to have this done days ago and I was going to have a video presentation or picture presentation everything. And I realized just how much information I have in my hands. It's just unbelievable the amount of evidence to prove that heliocentrism is wrong so it's a pretty easy debate really juicy well this is coming in from do appreciate your question dj moss says question for iron horse calculate steel beam strength which is supported ends and there is 100,000 kilograms at the center point let me just double check it's a lot of zeros i want to be sure i got that right 10,000 kilograms at the center point. You can use only math without gravity. I haven't found a formula for that. Can you? Um, I'm not an engineer, so I'll give you that, but I can work out that uh, 10,000 kilograms is 10 tons. So that's pretty simple. Um, I don't know the tensile strength of steel off the top of my head, but I do know that everything... Um, has density, and then the volume of the so-called density is what gives it its weight. And so depending on the density of the steel and the density of the um, – what what sort of weight was it? That, I guess it doesn't really matter. It's just 10,000 or 10 tons um, on a steel beam. How long was the steel beam exactly? They did not mention – they just said, question for Iron Horse, calculate steel beam strength, which is supported – ends i don't know understand english like the english of that i don't get it they say which is supported ends and there is uh, ten thousand kilograms at the center point you can use only math without gravity i haven't found a formula for that yet can you no nah, because he doesn't describe how thick the steel beam is how long it is how far the ends are away so it's not something that can be easily calculated but yeah, we, we can basically say it's all boils down to density. And yeah, go ahead. I just, you seem to have an idea. I think he's, I think it's like if you get a really long plank, say take a long plank of wood, right? And you, mm-hmm. you put it, um, put them on two fulcrums. The longer the plank, you get some sag in the middle, right? And the longer mm-hmm. the plank of wood is, the more sag you get in the middle. And the reason we say there's sag in the middle is because of gravity. The weight of the the plank pulling it down. And he's saying with these steel pieces, these steel beams, whatever they are, as I think he said, ten thousand kilograms of force or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that basically just boils down to the the density, the resistance factor of the steel beam itself. I, I know you like to invoke gravity, but gravity basically just means weight. It doesn't mean anything more than that. And weight, in its own right, is technically a force 
And the two opposing forces is the weight versus the resistance factor. So it's the resistance factor of the steel beam. And generally speaking, when they talk about gravity in a formula, mathematically, they're talking 9.8 metres per second squared. That's the rate of any sort of mass falling in the medium of air, which has virtually no resistance. So that's all that the G is in that formula. It's, it's just distance over time. It's got nothing to do with an actual force whatsoever. You got it. The G in the... The, the G formula is for the gravitational constant when mass times mass divided by the radius squared between the center of the two objects. But, yeah, but yeah, 9.8 you... meters per second, that's all. How, how do you calculate the radius? You know, like, wh where do you get R value? From the center of the mass. Yeah, and that's basically the center basically of each all mass. the way back to, to Eric talking about you know, measuring shadows of sticks, and that's how you get R value. That's still the same way we do it today. Like, I, I've tried very hard to find out how we measure the circumference of the Earth today. We still do it the same way Eratosthenes did as measuring shadows of sticks, and that works just as well for putting a couple of, say, bottles or something standing on the table, shining a torch down. I mean, you can work out exactly how spherical the table is with that same method. It's, it, yeah, good luck with that. Now, we have satellites in orbit that we can measure the size of the Earth. Oh, satellites in orbit. forgot about that. Yeah. You got it. This one coming in from, do appreciate your question. Dr. Mantis Tobogan says, Iron, you said you had 10,000 debunks of the Helio model. Why didn't you show any? Well, because I'm not that technologically uh, advanced in my ways, and I'm doing this through a phone. Um, once I learn how to use my laptop and make a presentation, I might present some of those 10,000, but I think... When it comes to a debate, if you can't argue something logically, if you're relying upon visuals, I think, you know, it, it works both ways. I prefer to do it as logically as possible. And I think I presented a case that proved my side of the story. You got it. Thank you very much for this one. Coming in from Nick says, would the physics work equally well if the sun revolved around the earth? If so, why must we discount our everyday experience and observation? Who's that for? Probably for me. So I, the, the, all the math is much more parsimonious if we do all the, the calculations based upon theory of relativity and use the sun as the center of the solar system. But the sun is only the center, the gravi gravitational center of itself, right? And then it affects everything else in the solar system. Just calling it the center is sort of convention, I would say, I, but, but how does yeah. that make sense if it's the gravitational pull of the sun, which allegedly holds all the planets, including the Earth, um, going around it as it's hurtling through space? So you can't just say the sun's only gravity to itself. It's obviously gravity to all the planets, the wandering stars, against the background of the fixed stars in the heliocentric concept. So what you're saying yeah. doesn't really make much sense. This one coming in from Nominal says... Quote, the invisible matter that we can't detect is called, quote-unquote, dark matter. And then they say that that's what NASA says. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so theory... Oh, you go ahead, Ozean. Yep. Yeah. So, I'm not a cosmologist. Just grant that, please. So, uh, when we look far distance out, we see some lensing effect, I believe, with um, um, our observations that isn't explained by the matter we see. So right now we have this placeholder for dark energy and dark matter. 
to explain our observations for really distant objects. And there are some other hypotheses. They're, they're speculating on like MONS, which is modified um, Newtonian dynamics, and try to harmonize dark matter without including dark matter. But it just might be the case that dark matter exists. But what we do know is all of our testing that we do for theory of relativity works. <laughs> so basically what you're saying is that gravity is the attraction of mass. But in order to stop everything colliding into a singularity, it must be the universe must be teeming with dark matter. But then to stop everything from expanding perpetually outwards, it's also for the dark energy. So everything based on your gravity disproves gravity. It, it works out to be a nonsense theory. Gravity sort of works when we're talking about things here on Earth. But as soon as we start going cosmological scale, that's why you have to invoke dark matter and dark energy because obviously it has to be there. It can't work any other way, but it's not as though you've seen it. It's just dark, it's invisible, and we have to have it because otherwise everything falls apart. It's the way science works. Is you make up one nonsense thing, you have to believe in another nonsense thing and another nonsense and another and another. Whereas if you just observe reality as it is, you don't have to make up anything. You got it. This one coming in from, do appreciate your question. Beamsy says, question for Iron Horse. With the way radar is cross-conformed by sonar and LADAR, why can we not use the readings we get from radars to get exact distance and movements of planets? Well, I, I don't believe that planets are physical. That's probably why. You know, we're just looking at lights. And I believe I brought it up in my opening when I said that they're sonoluminescent or they're, they're electrical in nature and sonoluminescent is basically the vibration of sound creating light, and that is how we see the light from stars. It doesn't mean that they're actually a physical thing at all, the way we think of it as a physical thing. So, um, yeah, I believe that radio and radar is basically next to useless when it comes to measuring non-physical things. You got it. This one from... Well, let me see if the name was attached to this one. I think I might have, might have missed it. But they, whoever it was, said, seems... why... Go ahead. Sonar doesn't travel through a vacuum. It has to travel through materials. So that you can't use sonar to measure distances, cosmic distances, because sound does not travel through a vacuum of space. But light does, and radio waves do. Radar does. So if you could focus a beam, I think they do that for the moon. They can measure the distance to the moon with radar. Yeah, well, that's why I say that sonar only works in our atmosphere. Like if we send a a um, camera up on a weather balloon up above a certain height, generally this 12 to 14 mile range, um, above the atmosphere itself where we have atmospheric gases, you don't see any stars whatsoever. So I believe that the stars that we see, we're only seeing as a result of looking up at them through the atmosphere and it is their frequency and vibration through sonar luminescence that creates the image of a sparkling star, which is basically the the... Um, prediction many, many years ago that the stars will fall to Earth. It's not to say they're actually falling physically to Earth. It's just that by understanding the nature of light and how it works, we bring the stars much closer to Earth because that is where they exist in our atmosphere, very, very close. And they're not thousands of light years starlight away. Doesn't vibrate, starlight doesn't vibrate our atmosphere. This well, gets, I believe it's, it a, it's not sound. I, I believe that we okay. should see stars more clearly in high altitude balloon footage, if stars are what your theory of them says they are, I believe we do. It's all 
related right. to our atmosphere. That the atmosphere is the most important fundamental aspect of existence, including light, including our ability to breathe, pressure, and all the rest of it. All physical existence exists as a result of our atmosphere and atmospheric pressure right. and the visible lights we see as well. This one coming yeah, in from... I think we need heat. Go ahead. This one from Nick says, is it a problem for the globe model if those who argue for it can't get their point across in a simple and logical way? Um, physics isn't simple. Cosmology is not simple. People spend their whole lives studying different specific branches of physics, so it'd be unreasonable to expect any single person to understand everything. But it should be able to be described in a pretty simple way. Once you understand something... Yeah, the, the whole concept of being able to understand something is being able to break it down and explain it to in a way that even a five-year-old can understand, even at its most simplest form. So if you can't even explain it to, say, a 50-year-old, then you're probably lacking something in your knowledge. You got this one coming I up. I think Tom. I did that, but... Do appreciate it. Let me just go over the standard list. What says, why would the whole astronomer community from the whole world conspire to lie to us, Iron Horse? I don't believe they're conspiring to lie to us at all. I just believe that they've been taught on the foundation of a lie in the first place. And it seems logical to them. They can they struggle to break free from it because the minute you try and break free from it within the community, you're going to be ostracized and you're going to be treated as an outsider, treated as ignorant. You know, I know all about that. I've been treated like this for years and years by people, but I stand by my guns and know what I know. And anybody that's trying to, to be somebody in the big wide world of stuff, they have to follow the dominant party line. It's simply how it works. If you don't, you get ostracized, you're treated as an outsider and you haven't got a hope in hell. So if you want to be making a living out of doing that sort of stuff, like people like Neil deGrasse Tyson do, you just keep telling the same lies that you have to tell or you get exposed. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. This one didn't have a name attached, but they said, why don't bacteria not fall off our bodies when we spin? Answer, <laughs> gravity, they say. Gravity. I would think that centripetal force should do the opposite, and if we're spinning, it should send them flying off. It's obviously they just don't have enough mass, and there's that thing called, for want of a better term, stickiness of moist things, living things that they'll just stick to us. But yeah, technically, the faster we spin, the more things should fly off of us. You got it. I could describe very disgusting things we do to discharge bacteria, right? Sneezing. Um, Flicking a booger, I don't know, all that stuff, but yeah. Yeah, it's real like spinning. <laughs> Very interesting. That is it for our questions. You do want to say, folks, want to encourage you, one, if you haven't yet, you can always check out our guest links in the description box. We really do appreciate our guests. They're the lifeblood of the channel, folks. And in addition... You can also find their links at the podcast description box as well. I want to say a huge thank you, Ozian and Iron Horse. It's been a true pleasure to have you guys here tonight. Much appreciated, James. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Thank you, James. Thank you, Iron Horse. Cheers, Ozian. I will be back in just a moment, folks, with a quick update on upcoming debates. So stick around for that post credit scene. It's going to be a short and sweet one. We want to say thanks again, everybody, for watching. And most of all, thanks so much, Ozian and Iron Horse.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.